Is there a handout? No handouts. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> for the last few weeks, we've been covering key figures of the Reformation, people like John Wycliffe and John Huss. Today, I'll be covering the life and character of Martin Luther, a man that I'm sure that most of you are familiar with. Luther is known as the key person that God used to spark the flame of what is known as the Protestant Reformation beginning in 1517. And for those of you who do not know, the Reformation resulted in what we now see to be the formulation of the Protestant Church, a restructuring of pure biblical worship that was also part of the Reformation, and a recovery of the doctrine of salvation by faith alone. And uh, it is amazing that God, in his providence, would use a man like Martin Luther to start one of the most important historical events in church history. And so, today, I want to go back in time and consider not only the events in the life of Luther, but the character of Luther and the context of Luther. Uh, Y'all had your coffee? (laughs) Okay. Uh, Just... Uh, Just for your information, we're talking about a time in history where in Europe there was already much tension going on with the Roman Catholic Church and society. There were already structural weaknesses in place for the Roman Catholic Church, uh, and, and it was, you can already sense that something was bound to happen eventually. Now, in God's providence, he uses a man like Martin Luther to be the man that sparks the Reformation. And I'm well aware that we're not Lutherans here. We're Baptists, so why are we talking about Luther? Um, I'm also aware that if Luther was alive today, he'd probably call us all heretics as well. Nonetheless, it was through Luther that the Protestant uh, Reformation, or through uh, Protestant, rather, Protestantism, rather, began, and we thank God that through him the church was exposed to the true gospel, justification by faith alone. And this goes for any Protestant denomination that you see that exists today, uh, with the exception of a few minor denominations uh, that are more on the radical side and intentionally pull away from any connection to historical roots. But for the most part, when you see a Protestant church today, They are a product, in some sense, of the Reformation. Now, before we get into the details about Luther himself, I want you to consider the context of Luther. The church had already faced conflict with men like John Wycliffe and Huss in their challenges against papal authority during the late 14th century and early 15th century. And then you have what is called the Western Schism, or the Great Western Schism, which is the period from 1378 through 1417, when there were two and later on three rival popes, each with his own following, having his own set of cardinals and his own administrative offices. So basically, three men simultaneously claimed to be the true pope, driven by politics rather than theological disagreement. The schism was ended by the Council of Constance, which was 1414 through 1418. By the way, this was the same council where they declared John Huss to be a heretic, and they set him up for execution. Now, besides people challenging the authority of the Pope, the schisms, there was also moral corruption at the time of Luther. And not many of you may be familiar with, the, with every single detail of the moral corruption. You might be familiar with the abuses of indulgences. Um, and by the way, not all places uh, that were Roman Catholic churches or anywhere where uh, Roman Catholic churches were established, not all of these places were guilty of these kinds of corruptions. Um, it, this was particularly in Luther's context. And as much as the Catholic system is flawed, and we would see that even now as, you know, as we look at the Catholic system now, we see that it's flawed. It wasn't Luther's intention to assume that the corruptions that he witnessed were in fact a corruption that took, places in all, took place in all of the churches around the world. 
Uh, so uh, Luther was aware of the corruption in his society. Um, he, he, didn't, he didn't start the Reformation with the assumption that these corruptions were the intention of the Pope. He saw them as corruptions on a local level. You'll also find out that in writing his 95 Theses, Luther was a great defender of the Pope and assumed that any corruption taking place was a corruption, like I said, at a local level. Either way, though, there was corruption, and Luther did address them. Um, and I'll, I'll list a few of these corruptions. The first one is simony. That's what it's called. It's a kind of corruption, simony. This was the buying and selling of clerical offices. So imagine uh, the church having its ecclesiastical offices, and when the person was ordained in that office, you know, it, as a way to sort of remove himself from that responsibility, he would sell his position to someone else or give money for other people to do the work that belonged to that clerical office. Um, by the way, the, the word simony or the name simony comes from Acts 8 where a man named Simon Magus wanted to pay Peter and John for them to lay hands on him so that he'd get the powers and the gifts that were given to the apostles. I don't know if you remember that in Acts 8. Um, but they, they took that example and that's what, they, that's what they call that kind of corruption, simony. Another corruption was pluralism. And pluralism specifically in that context meant uh, men holding multiple ecclesiastical offices. And you wonder, why would anyone want a position and then sell it, or want a position in the church and try to get more positions in the church? And again, this was, at least at the time, this was more about status than it was serving the kingdom of God. So pluralism was that one. Another one is absenteeism which was anyone who held any church position, they would avoid those duties, right? They would be absent. This happened when the cleric would hire a person to do their job, just like what I spoke of before. Absenteeism. Corruption number four, uh, the breakdown of celibacy. Now we, as Protestants, we don't practice celibacy uh, in the clergy, right? We, we don't require pastors or, or deacons or anyone holding a, a church position to abstain from getting married. But in this time, this was part of the Catholic uh, church's position. And the priest who would, at that time, who, those who would fall in love with a woman and wanted to pursue her, even after making celibacy vows for their office, would be granted a special permission if they paid a fee to the church, you know you can see you can get exceptions when you when you when your money's right essentially, and this was seen as an abuse and was seen by the people in the society as a corruption. This would discredit the priests, and by the way, it was estimated that one fourth or even one even one third of the priests, at least in Germany and uh, the Netherlands. About one-third of the priests participated in that kind of, that kind of stuff, which is, which is interesting. And uh, corruption number five is greed. That one's probably the most obvious one. There was a strict demand for anyone who owed the church anything to be sure that they paid. Uh, this included the manipulation that was used on people in order for them to purchase indulgences. So the church was greedy. That was a, that was a corruption. So this was the context of Luther's time. That's what he was seeing around him. That's what he was facing. That's what he grew up in. And by the way, these corruptions were not a surprise to the people in the society. It was common when you see a... It's common, especially when you see a movie or a movie depiction of Luther. Um, it, it, you know, it seems that everyone is uh, sort of surprised when they see these kinds of corruptions. Um, there were people that were like one step away from blowing up against the Catholic Church, and that's not, that's not how it was. Everyone was sort of used to the church's corruptions. 
They viewed the church in the same way an average person today speaks about politics or government. Uh, people today would say, yeah, politicians are corrupt. It's hard to trust them. That was the attitude of the time when they spoke about the church. <clears throat> it's also important to note that Luther doesn't stand his reformation upon these moral or structural corruptions. His reformation wasn't started because there was so much corruption or moral corruption necessarily. Luther wasn't what we would see today as a social activist. Luther was not a social activist. Luther was not a revolutionary. In fact, Luther in his life, um, he publishes a piece entitled Against the Muttering, Thieving Hordes of Peasants. This was something that he wrote. And he responded in that piece to a revolt that took place in Germany in 1525 by groups who wanted to push Luther's Protestant movement further into other churches and other church issues. And also, they wanted to push Protestantism um, as, a, as a way to deal with societal issues. And they did so in a manner that was sort of a, a revolt, a revolution. And Luther, in his piece, against the muttering, thieving hordes of peasants, in that writing, he argues that nothing can be more satanic than a rebel. Luther was not a revolutionary. <clears throat> uh, on the contrary, he respected authority, whether it was ecclesiastical authority or even civil authority. <clears throat> um, Luther, in his attempt to address important matters of the church, simply focused on the theological issues. And this should, get, this should give you an idea of the tone in which Luther is taking the Reformation or approaching reform in the church. <clears throat> um, again, it's interesting that we, we often see pictures of Luther looking like a revolutionary. You Google Luther and it looks like he's there and he's starting a, a big revolt. Uh, even even in the pictures of him posting his 95 Theses, Luther seems to be surrounded by crowds of people who are all astonished by the fact that he posted something on the church door. Some pictures dramatically make Luther look like he's holding a sledgehammer, ready to stand up against the Pope. But this isn't historically accurate. Luther wasn't going and starting a revolution. In fact, it was common during Luther's time that professors in the university associated with the church and monastery that they were members of, it was common for them to post theses on the church door for further discussion. I don't know if you knew this, but weeks before Luther posted his 95 theses, Luther posted 97 theses right before that. Um, it was called Disputation Against Scholastic Theology. Yet, when he posted his 97 theses, no one rose up. It wasn't revolutionary in any sense. If anything, Luther would have been looking forward to discussing the concerns in his theses and would have been happy to hear the other side of the argument if needed. That was just the custom of the professors, scholastics. So for those of you who think you're a modern Luther, and think you are God's superhero by picking a fight against your own church, I would say, look at Luther. That's not, that's not how he did things. Uh, Luther saw that uh, rebellion as a hideous sin. And on that note, I want us to transition into another aspect of Luther's context. I want us to explore the character of Luther as a man in his time. So we I kind of set the background context. I want to talk a little bit more about his character, his personality. Oftentimes when reading Luther, okay, you might notice that his experience with Satan is described very different than the way that you and I might describe our encounters with the devil. Luther uh, seemed to describe his spiritual warfare in a bit more personal and interactive manner. For example, in one occasion... Luther says this, he says, when the devil comes during the night to plague me, I give him this answer. He says, devil, I must sleep now, for this is God's command. 
work during the day, sleep at night. If he does not stop to vex me, but faces me with my sins, I reply, dear devil, I have heard the record, but I have committed far more sins which do not even stand in your record. Put them down too. This was sort of Luther's humor, but I'm convinced that Luther believed what he was saying. I think in Luther's mind and in Luther's personal experience, he was convinced that he was confronting Satan. And these were probably genuine responses. Here's another quote from Luther on another occasion. He says this, and I quote, The devil has often raised a racket in the house and has tried to scare me. But I appealed to my calling and said, I know that God has placed me into this house to be Lord here. Now, if you have a call that is stronger than mine and are Lord here, then stay where you are. But I well know that you are not Lord here and that you belong in a different place, down in hell. And so, he says, I fell asleep again and let him be angry, for I well knew that he could do nothing to me. And so you see, this is Luther's interaction with the devil. (laughs) Now, those are just a few examples that show how Luther sees the spiritual world around him. You may ask yourself, was Luther charismatic or Pentecostal? Uh, The answer is yes and no. (laughs) Uh, Luther knew nothing of that kind of denominational movement that we, like when we think about Pentecostalism and charismatic um, stuff, that's not exactly how Luther saw things. He knew nothing about denominational movements. But rather, Luther was a medieval man in every way. Luther was a medieval man. And when you compare Luther to, let's just say, Calvin or Zwingli or Melanchthon, most of these other reformers come into the scene educated under a different line of scholasticism in which, at the time, was part of a rise of modern education. In other words, Luther was kind of in, in, if you put a timeline, Luther was stuck sort of in the middle of a transition of scholasticism. He's probably one of the last medieval men. And he's, he's sort of uh, moving in a time where there was a rise of a new kind of education. There came a rise of what we would call humanism as a method of education that had a strong emphasis on going back to the original languages and cultures of ancient Greece and Rome. And this is not to be confused with secular humanism of today. Humanism in the period of the reformers had an emphasis on what today is known as the humanities, right? Grammar, rhetoric, history, poetry, moral philosophy. These Christian reformed humanists were men of letters. They would go and read original sources. And this is why you might notice a difference when you pick up the works of Calvin and the way that he interacts with early writings. It's a big difference when you read Calvin and Luther, although uh, Luther, Luther's theology was, was very much influ- influential uh, to the men that came after him. So th- these, were, these were those reformers, but Luther was not that. <laughs> Luther is one of the last medieval men And this is not to say that Luther was not an educated man. On the contrary, Luther, after his thunderstorm experience, you all remember his experience uh, in the rain and the thunderstorm where lightning struck right in front of him. It was sort of like a conversion story, except I don't think that was really a conversion. He, he, at that moment, he was scared to death of God, and he uh, vowed to live as a monk in that very moment. Uh, after this thunderstorm experience, uh, Luther joins the Augustinian monastery, which had a strong emphasis on education in comparison to other monasteries. Uh, And even as a monk, Luther gets a BA in Bible, a BA in what they call sentences, which is the study of quotes from the patristics, Luther then goes on and gets his doctorate in Bible. And not to mention that the pairing of academic life with monastic life gave Luther a great insight when it came to theology and the Christian life. Now in 1512, Luther becomes a head professor 
in the University of Wittenberg. And this is the time when Luther interacted most with some of the key doctrinal issues regarding man's will and uh, things related to justification. It was during this time. Luther even takes on additional work as the priest of Wittenberg Church. Uh, this time he was preaching to laity and not to other aspiring scholars. So Luther has a lot of experience. He's very educated. Uh, in 1515, he even takes on leadership as an overseer of uh, monasteries that were under the Augustinian order. So we see that Luther was in fact considered a high esteemed scholar. Now, to my point, he was still a medieval man. And in his time, he, he's facing what I, what I mentioned before, he's facing two strands of scholasticism. One being late medieval theology, and second being the, the rise of Christian humanism. Now, in, in this teaching, I won't be going into theological discussions or anything, any of the distinctions of the two uh, forms of scholasticism. I think next week I'll talk about uh, the theology of Martin Luther. Uh, but to my point, this is why you'll often read unique quotes from Martin Luther uh, yelling at the devil and, and things that, that seem a little bit different than what we would probably be used to. Luther is coming from a time very much informed by late medieval mysticism with its emphasis on personal experience, a sort of Platonic Augustinianism. Uh, and this is, this is what was influencing Luther uh, to have, to, to see theology and any form of reality um, through the lens of experience or, or experiencing God as opposed to like a rationalistic perspective of, of Christianity. Today, we're affected by the Enlightenment. So when we read Luther say something like this, he says, come, let us sing a psalm and drive away the devil. You know, sometimes we read something like that and it's a little bit difficult for us to relate to it, although we wouldn't disagree with the theology behind some of it. It's a little bit hard for us to relate to. Here's another quote that's hard to relate to. Luther says, I resist the devil and often it is with passing gas that I chase him away. When he tempts me with silly sins, I say, devil, yesterday I broke wind too. Have you written it down on your list? I don't know what to do with that. <laughs> In my opinion, though, I, I think quotes like that speak more on his sense of humor than his theology. However, he was still very much a medieval man. And I don't think Luther was speaking figuratively or metaphorically. I think he was sincere. Um, so, again, Luther was a man of his time. Now, just to add to that, the medieval context is one in which those who lived in those times were accustomed to living in what we would consider to be very, very hard times. Consider the medical advancements that we have today. <laughs> they did not have that. This was a time that something as common as an aspirin or a Tylenol was not available. No anti antibiotics. Many people died simply from an infection. So death would have been more of a reality to the people of that time. A lot more than it is in our time. I think in our time, everyone's sort of denying death or finding ways to forget death, um, to distract ourselves from death. But there was a deeper concern for death in that time. There was a deeper concern for the afterlife, which would have been a major part of the thought life of the people of that age. And this also shed some light on the role that religion had in society in, in that period, that late medieval period. Again, this is the context in which Martin Luther is living. Okay, moving on, I want to get into more of his personal life. <clears throat> Luther was born in November 10th, 1483 in Eiselben, Eiselben, Germany. He was the oldest out of about nine children his parents were not the wealthiest people and therefore wanted the oldest, which would mean Luther, to advance or advance the family. Therefore, they worked on his education and wanted him to pursue law. His parents were very strict. For example, here's a quote 
from Luther about his mother. He says, about his mother, he says, For the sake of stealing a nut, my mother once beat me until the blood flowed. Uh, About his father, he says, My father once whipped me so hard that I ran away and I hated him until he finally managed to win me back. They're pretty strict. Now, even though Luther says these things, it never seems that Luther has had or held any kind of resentment against his parents or any grudge. He doesn't write negatively about them. Um, I, I just think he's reminiscing about the times where his parents were pretty rough on him. Um, if you, by the way, if you look, if you uh, read his works on family and raising up children, uh, he, he, uh, he mentions somewhere, I forget where it is, um, about how good it is not to beat your kids too much. <laughs> so you can see there's some sort of uh, wisdom that he gained from some bad experiences uh, in his childhood. Nevertheless, he, he, he looked at his parents with great respect. He never spoke negatively against them. Uh, and in fact, this, this kind of discipline was probably common. I'm not, I'm not sure. Now, as many of you know, Luther has a major change of plans when during a thunderstorm, the thunderstorm experience that I mentioned uh, before, um, during that thunderstorm, a lightning bolt struck very close to him. This was that, that experience that I mentioned earlier. And at that moment, he pleads to St. Anne the supposed mother of the Virgin Mary, to save him. And he even goes as far as to make a vow to become a monk, and this is where he joins the Augustinian monastery. Why did he make such a dramatic life change in that very very moment? I mean, a lot of things happen to us, and we don't decide to, you know, become priests or nuns um, or, or make any kind of serious commitment. But why did he make such a serious commitment in that very moment of where he felt sort of a life and death experience. Well, at the time, it was assumed that if you died instantly, it was as if God was opposed to you. You were considered to be a cursed person. God didn't like you. And so, you know, you read a story about Luther and lightning almost hitting him, and now he decides to join a monastery. It, it, it seems to go over it pretty quickly, but the reality was that he looked at that moment and he felt as if God were seriously opposed to him. That was the custom. That was the idea of the day. And with that in mind, a decision to give his life over to the service of God in a monastery doesn't seem out of place. He he, he really did it, and he he took seriously that vow. What was the monastic life like? Well, the daily life of a monk consisted of prayer every three hours, plus uh, matins and vigils, which were short liturgies. Um, it consisted of singing, praying, and reading. The psalms were something that they read regularly. Um, and in between, in between those uh, services, they would engage in labor, things like farming, uh, teaching, um, getting involved in education. Uh, and this was considered a humble work when you join a monastery. Uh, and this was Luther's life for a very long time. And now, what kind of monk was Luther? Luther was one of the most devoted monks. And this was where things get interesting, because many 20th, 21st century critics that criticize Luther, they analyze his life as a monk, and they conclude that Luther was not only disturbed, but that he was insane. When they read about Luther, they see that this man was sick mentally, Um, and I'll tell you why. Luther was neurotic, okay? He suffered from an ongoing nervous stomach, right? He suffered from things like kidney stones, right? But it's not, he wasn't crazy because he suffered these things. More than him looking at his health issues, he would see his health issues as if God was punishing him through these health issues. So he tended to tie everything that was going on in his life to the judgment of God. Luther was filled with anxiety. 
uh, Luther couldn't help but feel that all of heaven was against him personally. And Luther had a great fear of the wrath of God. And this was constant, constantly in his mind. He struggled with sleep. Now, why did he have such a great fear of the wrath of God? Think about it. Why would anyone have such a great fear of the wrath of God? Luther, in his study of the word of God, this idea of being safe in some middle ground, that even though you're not perfect, you're still good with God, that didn't go well with Luther's theology. When he looked at the Bible, he couldn't make sense of sort of this casual living, this like, you know, I'm not perfect, I'm okay with God though. And, and why? Why was, why was this idea a fantasy that you can just live so casually without the fear of God? Well, he would look at the law of God. And God's law was strict. And anyone who took it seriously, you know, has to come to terms with themselves and, and, and realize that if God is requiring me to follow his rules, his standards, I, I'm, I'm going to hell. There's, there's no way. For Luther, it was all or nothing. And rightly so, right? The scripture shows this. God demands perfect obedience. And sin is always wicked in the sight of God. This is, God is not looking at smaller sins and says, oh, you know, it's okay. Um, this one's no big deal. God looked at every sin and saw it as rebellion against him. And what did this result in? What kind of practice did this result in when it came to Luther's uh, piety? You see Luther spending hours in a confessional with this poor, patient priest. We're talking about five or six hours in the confessional. And it's said that Luther would try his best to confess every sin that would possibly pop up in his memory. Now just imagine how the, the priest felt when, right when he thought he was done with his confessions. Luther says, wait, I got one more. And, and this guy is going crazy. It is said that even after doing long acts of penance, he would mumble to himself. After doing some sort of penance, some sort of work for God, he would mumble to himself, who knows if that even worked? Who knows if what I just did was even good enough for God? Now, he wasn't so much doubting the deed as much as he was doubting himself for doing the deed with a true repentant heart. He didn't trust himself. And why would he? He knew that he was, he was filled with flaws. He, he was a human. He couldn't, uh, he couldn't do this from a heart that perfectly pleased God. And here's something that's interesting. You can, you can, even, and you can sometimes find this kind of behavior in Protestant churches. So this is not only the Catholic church. We look at this and say, man... I would never want to be a Catholic. But you sometimes see this kind of behavior in Protestant churches where a Christian is involved in high and sinful levels of morbid introspection, a sort of soul muckraking, a, a deep digging inside your heart for sins. Like I, I'm raking in the soil of my heart and I'm trying to find any little sin that's hidden in my heart. And, and you see this kind of behavior, this, this morbid introspection, even in some Protestant churches, unfortunately. And the flawed assumption with this kind of behavior is that salvation depends on how accurate you can identify your sins. That, that's not what God calls Christians to do. Uh, it, it, your salvation doesn't depend on how well you can locate the sins in your heart. Nor, uh, nor does it depend on how strong of an emphasis or how strong you feel about the way that you repented. <clears throat> this kind of idea places a stronger emphasis on the quality of repentance or how hard a person repents as opposed to trusting in the finished work of Christ. <clears throat> so you see that often in, in Protestant churches and the, the key thing is they don't understand the gospel. Now, for a Protestant who ought to understand the gospel, there is no excuse for this. However, for Luther, he was simply following what the Roman Catholic doctrine of salvation was. And even though he was accused of insanity, 
if you really think about it, he was probably the most sane person in his midst. He was not willing to play around with the holiness of God. He knew that he was a sinner and that God was holy, and that idea killed him. At some point, they asked Luther, Luther, do you love God? You know what he said? He says, you ask me if I love God? Sometimes I hate God. Sometimes I hate God. Luther, in this very moment, was not trying to disrespect God by saying that, but rather he was expressing plainly that according to the law of God, the standards of God, trying to please God to him was an impossible task. Every time he would look at a crucifixion or a symbol of Christianity, uh, he didn't see grace. He didn't see salvation. He only saw in Christ a standard of holy living raised so high that often any thought of God only served as a reminder to Luther of how much work he had to do and how much merit he needed to gain in order to meet the standard of the holiness of God that God required. In other words, thoughts of Christ were like a curse to Luther sometimes. And this went on. This was an internal struggle in Luther. And this went on until Luther finally with new eyes, is enlightened with a true understanding of that passage in Romans 1.17, which says that the just shall live by faith. One day he, uh, he came to this understanding by looking at that passage, not that he's never read it before or never taught from it before, but in God's providence, the Lord allowed him to see that verse with new eyes, regenerated eyes. Now, I won't get too much on the theology behind the interpretation of that passage. I'll be talking about that next week. But I will say that for Luther, looking at that and seeing that was, was almost like being born again. Imagine, and if you remember, the first time you understood the gospel and how refreshing that felt, you felt liberated. Luther says, he says, therefore, and he's describing his experience here. He says, therefore, I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of scripture took on a new meaning. And whereas before the righteousness of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet in greater love. This passage of Paul became to me a gate into heaven. It's, it's the same feeling that when you first hear, you know, prior to your conversion, you, you would hear uh, the preaching of God's word. You would see Christians preach to you, and it, it was annoying. Uh, it didn't make sense to you. It felt burdensome. I remember um, in, in some evangelism experiences that I've had, I, I always hear people say, look, I hear what you're saying about Jesus, but I'm not ready to give myself to a religion right now. I'm too young. In other words, you know, if you really look at what they're saying, they're saying, I don't want to commit anything, commit myself to anything because it's a burden on me. For Luther, when he understood that passage and, and God showed him the gospel, the, 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 the free grace that's in the gospel, it was liberating to him in such a way that he says that passage of Paul became to me a gate unto heaven. Praise God that in that very moment in history, this great reformer understood the gospel. And so it was from this point on that Luther became a strong tool in the hands of God as he engaged in disputes with the Roman church. You could even see a shift in Luther's character. He becomes a sharp-minded man with a heart for the truth of God to be known. Uh, in 1518, Luther was invited to debate and discuss the issue of indulgences at what is known as the Heidelberg Disputation. From the audience in that debate, from the audience uh, stood Martin Butzer, okay? uh, a man by the name of Martin Butzer, and he observes the character of Luther in these discussions, this debate that he was having. And this is what he says about Luther. He says, Luther responds with a magnificent grace and listens with insurmountable patience. He presents an argument with the insight of the Apostle Paul. 
You see change in his character. He was a gracious listener, a gracious speaker. He was a patient man when it came to, you know, engaging in debate. Now, further on in Luther's life, he, this is when he's already posted his 95 Theses. Uh, his theology becomes a major problem with the Church of Rome. You all know of the infamous Diet of Worms, where he's taken, uh, he's taken before the council. Um, or he's also taken before the Emperor of Rome, Charles V, for a final trial. And they're checking him, his theology. He, he does not back down, even though he had no desire to go against the Catholic Church and its establishment. He didn't want to cause a division, but he knew that what he understood from Scripture was of God. And so in uh, May 25th of 1521, Luther's declared not only a heretic, but he's declared an outlaw for not recanting his theology, which they considered to be very dangerous in society. He was not only excommunicated from the church, but he was sentenced to be executed. And at this point, Luther, being a man that did not wish to cause division to the church, nor seek to undo the Roman Catholic system, but desired to simply reform it according to the word of God, Luther, by himself, had to come to terms with himself. He, he had to look at himself and say, man, you come this far, this is what you believe, then let's, let's live by it. Let's stand by these truths. And so he did. He lived by these convictions. And of course, being that he was sentenced for uh, death or sentenced to death, Luther went into hiding, right? His boys put him in the Wartburg Castle. He changes his name to Yunker George. <laughs> he grows a beard, uh, as sort of a jab against monasticism. He begins to translate the Bible into German for the sake of the people. And he begins to write more and more for the sake of furthering the Protestant movement. Luther was also involved in writing music for the church. Luther was a composer and a writer of texts and tunes for a number of chorals, including We All Believe in One God, and of course, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Luther saw music as highly important to the Reformation and to all of life, for that matter, especially to the life of the church. Now, with, with all that said, I'm going to get into my final transition. And I'll say this. This is my favorite part. <laughs> my personal favorite part of Luther. Maybe it's not yours. Maybe your personal favorite part was the posting of the 95 Theses. This is, this aspect of Luther is my personal favorite. And this aspect is Luther as a family man. Luther as a father, Luther as a husband. So let's get into it. Luther, and this is just for your information, Luther prior to the Reformation, he understood Christian piety and holy living as a person willing to cut themselves off from the world. And one of those things that he saw to be pious was cutting yourself off from marriage. We know that priests were forbidden to marry, but even culturally, marrying, or not, rather, not marrying seemed very pious. Yet after Luther's Reformation, he began to consider marriage as a strong push towards change. He knew that marriage would be a strong reformational symbol of breaking away from the false doctrines of the Roman Catholic Church. So, not only, Luther, not only did Luther marry someone, but guess who he married? He married an ex-nun. Perfect. Look at her right there. What cutie pies. Uh, her name was Catherine von Bora. And it's interesting to see how this marriage changes him. Before marriage, Luther felt no need for marriage at all. His only view on it was that it should be permitted if a man can't practice self-control. Understandable. Therefore, if he's struggling with that, then he should marry as to control his lusts. Also for the producing of life, having children and producing life. Other than that, he couldn't see himself as a married man. Now, it's funny to see Luther begin to change. When, when they got engaged, 
This is what he said in the beginning. He says, this was not a love match. I am not infatuated. Then all of a sudden, in a future occasion, he says, I would not exchange Katie for France or for Venice because God has given her to me. And this is him kind of keeping his man, you know, status up. He says, and other women have worse faults. So (laughs) Katie will do No one would have ever thought that a man like Martin Luther would have gotten married. But in reality, neither did Martin Luther. It was actually quite humorous. It was a humorous thought for him and for others to see Luther get married. And this is even in his wedding invitations. I'm going to read some of his wedding invitations. For example, Luther sends one invitation to a friend. And it says this. You must come to my wedding. I have made the angels laugh and the devils weep. (laughs) in another wedding invitation he sends to another friend he says he says this I'm sorry undoubtedly the rumor of my marriage has reached you I can hardly believe it myself but the witnesses are too strong the wedding will be next Thursday in the presence of my father and mother I hope I hope you can bring some game and come yourself (laughs) Uh, and to Leonard Kopp this is someone else another friend he says He says this in his uh, wedding invitation. He says, I'm going to get married. God likes to work miracles and to make a fool of the world. You must come to my wedding. (laughs) So quite humorous. Now, marriage brought many changes to Luther's way of living. Here's an example. Luther says, before I was married, the bed was not made for a whole year and became foul with sweat. But I worked so hard and was so weary, I tumbled in it without noticing it. As you can tell, his wife, Katie, was a blessing to his life. Katie cleaned and kept things in order. And being that this was all new to Luther, there were things that he had to start learning how to get used to. When you, know, you enter into marriage, this is all new to him. Um, and Luther reflects on this, and he says this. There's a lot to get used to in the first year of marriage. One wakes up in the morning and finds a pair of pigtails on the pillow, which were not there before. Now, as time moved on, Luther and his wife lived in great harmony. He would often refer to her as my rib, and even my lord sometimes. Sometimes he would play with her and flip her name around from Katie to Kete, which meant chain, as to say that she had him on lockdown. There were often times of financial difficulties. And being that Luther would never take a penny from his books, Katie would assist as she managed the field, she managed the pasture, she would sell cows, and looked after an an orchid that was past their village, which supplied them with fruits and vegetables. And she was an amazing woman. And Luther spoke so highly of her. She really modeled the virtuous woman described in Proverbs 31. He even paid her the highest tribute when he called the epistle of Galatians, my Catherine von Bora. Apparently, Galatians was his favorite book. And he would name the book sometimes after his own wife. A little bit extreme, but he would admit to that extremity. Uh, He once said, often, I give more credit to Catherine than I do Christ, when Christ has done so much more for me. Nonetheless, he really loved his wife, and she loved him back. Then, on October 21, 1525, Luther announced something to his friend. He said to his friend, my Catherine is fulfilling Genesis 128. In other words, Luther is announcing that they were having a baby. And Luther loved his kids. He ended up having about six children in total. And he joked around with his babies. Uh, He joked around with uh, one of the babies when they were wrapped up in swaddled clothes. He would say to the baby, kick little fellow. That is what the Pope did to me, but I got loose. Uh, Luther was very humorous. In the Luther home, it was said that Luther really enjoyed home and family. His colleague remarked that he saw the blessing of God in fruit at the Luther home. Luther reveled in household festivities. So including Luther, Katie, and their six children, they also adopted 
four more children who were orphan children among their family. And they also opened their house for other children who needed temporary shelter. So they had a bunch of kids running around. Uh, Here's a little painting of Luther surrounded by kids and his wife singing psalms and hymns and making music. This was Luther applying his theology to family life. Luther saw that family life offered one of the best environments in which to cultivate Christian discipleship. Luther said, parents should not merely lavish honors and possessions on their children, but should enrich their souls with the arts, with study, with sound literature, and especially instilling in them the fear of God. When it came to biblical education, Luther would use catechism or catechesis to train up his children. And uh, Luther's writing on domestic life shook the culture of Western Christendom and led to a new view of family that was further developed with later reformers. But Luther's view of family and children was very influential and it literally changed Western society through his writings, through the fact that he himself was an influential figure. And so we we, want to keep that in mind when we think about, you know, a lot of things that we just assume is the norm. A lot of this was thought through and developed, you know, through the theology of Martin Luther and obviously through the providence of God. In fact, scholars believe that Luther's ethical teaching have had greater impact on family relationships than any other aspect of ordinary life. And aside from the rediscovery of the true doctrine of justification by faith, his work on family life, in my opinion, is one of the greatest contributions of uh, Christianity, of Christendom. Um, That concludes the teaching on uh, Luther's life and character for today. Next week, I'll get into Luther's theology. Uh, And you might find some of his theology surprising. So I'll leave that as sort of a cliffhanger. Uh, We'll discuss some of his his theology. We'll get into some of the essential things that we would hold to. um, And uh, we'll have fun with that. So join us next week. Let me pray. Our Father, we thank you for your work throughout church history, particularly with men like Martin Luther. This isn't isn't a faith that was given uniquely to individuals, but a faith that was once and for all handed down to the saints, your church universal. Not only the saints of today, but we stand on the shoulders of many who've come before us, and we thank you that you've never left us alone in that way. Your word has always been with your people. We thank you for that. Father, may we be faithful as you entrust us to pass these truths forward as you did with men in the past. Lord, we thank you so much, and we do not take it for granted. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.